0: In our series, we've come all the way up into Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read to you this morning from chapter 12, verses 3 through 21 for context, and over the next few weeks, we will seek to unpack some of the teaching that the Apostle has put into this wonderful uh, application of the doctrine of the former 11 chapters that he so painstakingly dictated to his beloved friend Tertius, who wrote it down at his desk while they met at the house of Gaius in Corinth. To the Roman church, Paul writes these words, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them, if prophecy Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the, of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for things in the sight of all men or rather have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, in Jesus' name, give us the faith, the wherewithal, the fortitude to apply all this rich teaching to our lives, O Lord, that we might be a glorious church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so the apostle writes, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So Paul puts himself right in the same place as every Christian. Just another gifted person, another receiver of grace. But also, as he said at the beginning, called to be an apostle. So Paul has to blend these two wonderful roles as a leader in the church. Humility with authority. And he must blend these. And we should recognize the humility and the the authority of this apostle who writes so lovingly to the church for our benefit. And yet as I read it, I see... I see the need of it, and certainly it was a need then. the, The needs of the first century continue to be the needs of the church in our time, which is amazing. We are really not evolving, as some had presumed we would, as a race. And if I'm to rightly assess the state of the church based on the directives of Paul that were designed to define her, I can only conclude with some sadness that the church... Is disappearing, but you say, Pastor, there are churches all over the land. Are there gifts in the church? Are is there humility left in the church? We'll discuss some of that this morning. Not only is the ancient model of the local church disappearing, but the professed church of today is sending it off with a hearty good riddance. We want new things. We want new and improved ideas and strategies. And we'll look into some of that this morning as well, as we began on the Thursday session. Now, I know I sound a bit dour. Perhaps that's partly my personality, but it's also part of what I see when I look out there in the world and in the churches and in individual Christian lives. I have observed the matter for many years, and it seems to me that no matter how devout today's believer becomes, his first concern will be to satisfy himself. And it's only natural that we would do that. And I'm going to show you, I think, with some historical context, that humili- humility is not a natural thing. It just isn't something that we're born with. It's much more Readily practiced by the individual to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's why there aren't so many in Christ. They think too highly of themselves. They see themselves as not sinners and, will, and not in need of a savior. And we'll discuss some of that this morning as well. But this is the place where the apostle lays out the foundation of biblical ecclesiology. That's not even a word that anyone uses anymore. My spell check goes wild. I love it when it does that. It's one of our words. Ecclesiology is a Christian word. It's the study of the church. It's the doctrines that define the church, and that's what sections like Romans 12, as well as 1 Corinthians 12. Go back and read that, or 1 Corinthians 14. Go back and read that one. They're all about what the church is supposed to be. So ecclesiology has to do with putting the body first and the individual second. Now, any parent should understand that kind of thing. Any spouse should. Well, if you expect your marriage to last past today, I think sometimes you have to, you have to put your own feelings aside for the feelings of the partner. I scare myself when I say partner. <laughs> <sighs> It seems to me we've lost the ability to consider the welfare of the church over and above our own welfare. Paul describes the church here and elsewhere as a body. And he uses it and he runs with it. He says, if the whole body were an ear, where would be the seeing? He says to the Corinthians. If the whole body were an eye, how would we smell? Right? Where would be our sense of smell? And he goes on like this. the Hands say to the foot, I have no need of thee. <laughs> you know, and he, he runs with this illustration, and I'm going to run with it a bit this morning myself. Because I, like Paul, am a lover of illustrations. And so it seems to me that we're not in a time when the individual is willing by and large, large scale in the body of Christ to subjugate his own opinions, desires. Do you know being right about a thing is overrated? We're going to find that out in chapter 14. Just being right about something, um, if it hurts your brother, is probably something you don't need to discuss right now. Don't engage the brethren in disputes over doubtful things. He says, don't be wise in your own opinions. We do sort of have a love affair with our opinions, don't we? And putting that aside is one of the essential aspects of humility. If I were to sum it up in one word, I would say this is a sermon about humility and what it is and how to attain it. You know, it's a funny thing, humility. Once you claim it, you can't possibly have it. It's very strange, isn't it? the humblest guy you've ever seen. I'm humbler than you guys. I mean, who says that? It can't be a competitive thing, right? It has to do with, friends, putting something before yourself, in this case, the body of Christ. It seems to me we've lost the ability to do that, to consider the welfare of the church over and above our own welfare. And Paul is saying the church can't survive that way. So Paul here, and elsewhere, describes the church as a body with many parts, and they're diverse parts. They do different things, right? Now to build upon this principle, it could be demonstrated that in instances of gangrene, oh here he goes, he's going to talk about gangrene. Do you know what gangrene is? It's like the infection of a body part until it's like dead and has to be removed, in instances of gangrene or other serious infection or the destruction of a body part, that a person will, albeit reluctantly, agree to forfeit a part of the body for the sake of the body. We see that a lot. I stand here missing a few parts, just so you know. But I do all right. You know? The whole can function quite better without the infected part than it can by continuing to drag it along with it. Right? I mean, that's a readily observable fact of life as a biological unit. You ever see those dogs with they had to lose the back legs, they put a little wheel there, and he's running along, he's happy as ever, the tail's wagging, he doesn't even know anymore. <clears throat> Except when he gets to a hydrant, I guess. <laughs> it would be... A matter of unparalleled stupidity, friends, to cherish the part more than the whole when it comes to your actual body, right? Wouldn't it be very foolish for the injured soldier on the field to say to the field doctor, doctor, I don't care what happens to my body, just do everything you can to save the leg. You see what I mean? And I don't mean to make light of that. I see those commercials all... The time for the wounded soldiers, and they show them. F- friends, the f- the whole can function quite better without the infected part than it can by continuing to drag it along. The remaining body can function apart from the dissevered member, but the member, without its intimate connection with the body, is really quite useless, isn't it? It is, in fact, a dead thing. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. I impart life to you. You can't cut off the branch and hope for it to live on its own without the vine. Another illustration from the Lord. But stay with me here for a moment, because my next conclusion is even more dire than that. Imagine the cancer patient saying to the surgeon, my cancer is in my head, please take it away, so that the rest of my body can be free to live. Christ is the head. So much of the church today has severed the head and thinks it's still the body of something. Maybe even of Christ. Now, as ludicrous as the metaphor sounds, it's the very thing the church is engaged in every time we move further and further away from the authoritative directives of our esteemed head, who is Jesus Christ. Friends, if we put away the authority of Christ, we have put away Christ in a de facto manner. He's not saying it, as they say, for his health, but for ours. To disobey the orders of the head is to act in a headless fashion, wouldn't you say? And yet we're those who've been graced with hearing directly from our esteemed head and Savior. We ought to be rejoicing in that. Not like those people in the synagogue in Nazareth who rejoiced for a few moments when he said wise things and then wanted to throw him off a cliff in the next moment because he said things they disagreed with. Friends, the body may not depart from the head and still supposed to be a vital organism. They talk about cutting off the head of the snake. You've heard that, right? Think of a headless body there as it lay quivering and dying or or running about the barnyard, frantic and aimless like the proverbial chicken, right? With its head cut off. Think how aimless and useless and temporary such a thing would be. And how do such things come to be? It can only come by a body supposing for a mere moment that the head is somehow dispensable. It can only come about by a body foolishly desiring to become its own head. It can only come about by a body rebelling against the orders and organizational structure imposed upon it by its head, which is its thinking organ, So when those traveling, quote, believers go about searching for the church of God, never attaching to anything, without any real clear biblical revelation as to what the church of God really is, and what might be their part in her purpose... They are just as so many headless chickens hoping that if they can run fast enough and far enough before their essential functions cease, that they may find someone or something that can, they can reattach them to a viable head. They're just running around like the chip chicken, hoping they come up with a technology that can put the head back on the body. There's a concept taught here in the 12th chapter of Romans, and it's a concept that's seen better days. It begins with the word living sacrifice. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So it starts with the words living sacrifice. It continues to be described as what? A transformation. You're not conforming to one thing, but you're willfully and, and uh, using your own power and effort to be transformed into something else. It commences in the words, present your bodies. Bodies are important to God. I wonder how important the average believer thinks such things are. Present your bodies a living sacrifice means to offer up your very existence for a purpose outside yourself. You know, we talk about what we get out of it when we come to service. People who are in search of a morning worship service or a, a, a a church to attach themselves to. They're looking for what they can get out of it. Well, I need this. I need this for my children. I need this for my aged parents. I need this for myself. I need these midweek programs. I need, I need, I need all these things. But you rarely hear someone talk about what they're going to bring to the body. I wonder how important the average believer thinks that such things are. Offering of yourself for the sake of something richer, something more valuable, something more eternal than your own survival and self-satisfaction, it seems to me, has become rarer. The, concepts be, the concept rather becomes clearer in our verse today. It goes like this. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Imagine running around and judging each body of worshippers as somehow not up to par with your view of what you need and what you are, this is what he's talking about here. This is a directive that's totally unnatural. There's no creature on the earth capable of arriving at such a thing on its own. Every organism is designed to seek and to secure its own survival. And if it means eating up every other organism in its path, then so be it. That's, what it. that's what some organisms do. I can hardly imagine a lion pondering the moral choice of whether or not to pounce upon the gazelle by saying to herself, see, the, the female, the lioness does the hunting, so notice I said herself, ladies. Saying to herself, you know, gazelles have a right to live as much as I do. Imagine the lion saying that, the humble lion, right? Imagine the lioness, how can I justify using my greater strength and power and tenacity to take such an innocent, beautiful, graceful creature just so I can feed myself? I'll not do it. It's never happened. Only people can think like this. Remember we talked about thinking about thinking? Animals don't do that. I know. Your pets do it. But most of the other animals don't. Your pets have emotion, I know. But um, the concept treated here in this passage, friends, is humility. It comes to us in various ways in Scripture. From, from Ephesians, we read this. And we've been looking into this in the Thursday evening sessions. Paul writes to the Ephesian church. To the Ephesian church, because they gathered together as a church, Right? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with what? All lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now, I asked the study group on Thursday evening an essential question. It's about this lowliness of mind thing, right? Humility. Humility. Lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Those are qualities of humility. So in order to get to the kernel of this, I asked the Thursday evening group an essential question. I said, what was the first sin? And I'll give you a minute to think about it. What was the first sin? I got two answers. The first answer was lying. The second answer was pride. And my answer was, you're both right i got to tell you, I felt like uh, Reb Tevye had fiddled around the roof when I said, you're both right. Because you know I don't usually do things like that. You're both right. And they came to Reb Tevye and they said he was trying to solve an argument between his Jewish brethren. And he said, he's right, he's right. How can they both be right? And Reb Tevye said, you know, you are also right. But um, they were both right. It's just that the lying, the outward act of sin was the child of the pride, which is the inner condition of the sinner. All sin emanates from pride, friends. All sin comes from thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But I enjoy this. I have a right. That's thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. If God says, you really don't have a right to that. And you ought to start enjoying other things than that, because that offends me. That's a difficult place to be, to build that in yourself. Lessening your own desire for the desires of God, and in this case, for the desires of the other children of God. So my answer was, you're both right. Lying is the outward act of sin that the inner condition of sin, pride, caused you to do. Lucifer was motivated by a perverse pride. Remember, he exalted himself above the Most High. It was his pride that caused him to lie and to urge innocent men to believe the lie. Or an innocent man, I should say, to believe the lie. Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. And he said, that's why you lie, basically. It was the pride of Lucifer that prevented him that prevented him or from being a servant of God. And so God cast him out. Because pride is a self-serving thing. You can't have it and serve God. It just doesn't work. Now our society cherishes pride. Take pride in everything. Pride cannot contribute to genuine devotion to God. Because just as every sin emanates from pride, every virtue comes out of humility. There has to be humility first. So there is a condition of man from which every virtue proceeds, and that virtue is humility. Now, it's a rare thing. It's so rare, friends, that the ancients had no word for it. I love this. I love that we have Christian words. That people, people have to get into the club to know what they're saying. Do you know that the Greeks and Romans had no word for humility? The word is used in, that's used in Scripture for humility is the Greek construction tapenophrosune. But you know what's good about the Greek language? You could take different parts and put them together. And because each part was definable, you have constructed a word that everyone would understand. So frasune, which we talked about at length in the Thursday session, it's generally rendered lowliness of mind. The Greeks and Romans had no word for humility. Their word that might have been rendered humble was their word for weakness. You see, to be humble, to put yourself below someone else, was considered weakness. Even a despised weakness. Any wonder why Jesus was put to the cross? Humility in the pagan world was seen as distinct evil in a person. It was weakness. To put oneself or one's desires below another person's desires for you was seen as an essential sin against yourself. And friends, you can only sin against yourself if you're your own God. John Wesley said that neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. I find that interesting. MacArthur writes, the very concept was so foreign and abhorrent to their way of thinking that they had no term to describe it. And he goes on to say, apparently this Greek term was coined by Christians, probably by Paul himself. It's a neologism. That's what you call a word you make up. I have a few of those, as you know. I like making up words. Paul made up a word. But then he had to tell them what it meant. So it was probably invented by Paul himself to describe a quality for which no other word was available. Friends, humility is a Christian virtue. Did you ever notice, the last time you've read through 1 Corinthians, you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the whole... chapter is about the church. It's about we're many members in one body. It's very similar to Romans chapter 12. And it goes through and it talks about the gifts. If the ear should say to the eye, I have no need of you, as I just pointed out. And then you switch over to 1 Corinthians 14, and it continues running with that theme. And, and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 talk about the church and the dictates of God for the church, and the wonderfulness of the gifts of the Spirit. And let me tell you, the gifts of the Spirit, like most gifts, are generally envied and a cause of trouble on the other end. And so these sections of Scripture had to be written. But why did Paul go from chapter 12 to chapter 14 to, dis- to describe what the church should be like? Because he used the word love, for which there really was no Greek notion of love. They had several words that we in English would translate into love. C.S. Lewis very famously wrote a book that I had to read in college, believe it or not, called The Four Loves. There's agape, as we know, there's phileo, there's eros, there's storge, there's these other words for love, and they have other meanings, but the apostle, between these two sections on the church, inserts what? What are the most beautiful, well known, memorable passages of, of scripture? You hear it every, at every wedding almost, Christian or pagan. Pagans love it too. Love does not seek its own, he said. Right? Love considers all things, believes all things. He goes on and on teaching us what love is in a way that the ancients had really no access to. He said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I bestow all my goods to the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits profits me nothing. Love suffers long. Why would anyone want it? It's long-suffering it. Suffers long. See how Greek works? And it's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, which is sin, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails the ancients didn't know what it was he had to tell them so he could go on to teach them what the church was like so 1 Corinthians 13 is this great parentheses in scripture because we don't naturally know what agape love is and by the way the ancients had the word but they didn't use it the way we do agape has become a Christian word friends just like tapino frasune it's a Christian word it's ours. God defined it, taught it to us. You know, sometimes when the missionaries of old, and maybe even of today, went out to the aboriginal peoples here in, the, uh, in North America, they went out to the Algonquin, you know, at the times of uh, John Eliot, the Puritan, who was lived out in the wilderness of Roxbury. And he was on the edge of civilization. And he had to teach the indigenous people a word for faith and mercy and grace and love because they didn't have those words. Now, I'm not saying pagan people don't love. They don't love their children. They do. But they don't understand this self-sacrificial thing of love that must emanate from humility, from not thinking of yourself first. Very hard to get to that. So MacArthur goes on. Apparently, this Greek term was coined by Christians, probably by Paul himself, to describe a quality for which no other word was available. Just like the Indians of the, of the plains and of here in New England. And he goes on to write, he writes this, To the proud Greeks and Romans, their term for ignoble, cowardly, and other such characteristics were sufficient to describe the unnatural person who did not think of himself with pride and self-satisfaction. Paul has a great hurdle to climb, and it's the human soul. It's the human pride, the view of ourselves. During the first several centuries of of Christianity, MacArthur writes, Pagan writers borrowed the term tapenofrasune but they always used it derogatorily frequently of Christians you know them those humble people and it was thought of as humble lowly and self-sacrificing how foolish and god lifts that up as the highest thing friends truly my thoughts are not your thoughts oh your thoughts my thoughts It seems to me that the Jews who called for the crucifixion of Jesus were more a product of the Greek world than they presumed. They thought they were not as pagan as the pagans. But maybe they were because they couldn't recognize humility when they saw it. They could hardly conceive of a God who was Humble. They could hardly believe that such a humble servant as Jesus could be the Son of God. For how could God be humble and lowly and self-sacrificing? How could he be God? If he was God, we wouldn't be able to kill him. They missed the point. It's because they didn't have tapenophrosune. Lloyd Jones similarly says, modesty and humility were regarded by the best pagans as weakness. I think he means by the best pagans, the, the higher classes, the, the educated. Ha- modesty and humility were weakness in the pagan world. And of course, he goes on, the idea is still found everywhere in the world today. Believe in yourself, says the world. Trust yourself, self expression. Opposition to the gospel is generally expressed in those terms. I'm going to give you an anecdote from many years ago. How how many people are old enough to remember the first afternoon talk show on TV? Phil Donahue. Remember Phil Donahue? White-haired guy. You know, he was liberal, but he wasn't like today's liberals. (laughs) But I mean, he, he was smart. Um... Had a pretty wife. He married Danny Thomas' daughter. You know, that girl. But um, <laughs> he was a smart guy. He was a good host, you know. But he was not a Christian and he had no understanding about Christianity. So I'm watching it one afternoon after I had become a Christian back in the late 80s, right? And I'm watching Phil Donahue. Um, I believe we were married. For some reason, I was able to see a. You know, in those days, you couldn't tape anything, but there was Phil Donahue. And he had these strange people. He always had these different strange people on that he would interview. And he had these strange creatures on. They were called born-again Christians. (laughs) He might as well have been looking into an aquarium with an octopus or something in there. He just had no access to our thinking. And these born-again Christians taught that man is sinful and he's born that way. What a horrible thought. Not only is he born that way, there's only one way to come out of it and it has to be by Jesus Christ. Forget all the other religions. The Allah's and the Buddha's and the Muhammads and all those things, right? The Vishnu. Forget all those things. You had to just choose Christ and he said it's the most arrogant, judgmental thing he'd ever heard. Now born again Christian was kind of a new thing on the, in the marketplace of ideas. There were Christians, and then there were born-again Christians, and as we know, that's still the way it is, right? But this was being introduced to a big, wide audience on the Phil Donahue Show. And then Phil Donahue said exactly what Deloyd jones says here. He said, it would be psychologically damaging to teach a child that he's a sinner. Now, you've heard this, right? I mean, people say this. Psychologically damaging. And then to apply physical punishment or spank the child for the sin is even worse. And so he said, You could destroy these people if you got them to believe they were born sinful and needed the blood of a stranger to atone for their sin. Psychologically damaging. Now, I'm frantically on the phone trying to call Phil Donahue. It was a call-in show. Have you ever tried to call in a nationally syndicated talk show? I I mean, anyone ever tried to call into Rush Limbaugh or anything? I don't know anyone that's ever gotten through. He pretends it's a talk show, but he used to take like two or three calls in three hours. Well, it was the same. Phil Donahue was the only show. There were only three stations, and you had to get up and turn the knob to get him. And... um, (laughs) So there was only three stations. So I'm calling and calling. Guess what I wanted to say to Phil Donahue? Since he never heard it, I'm going to tell you. I said, maybe you're right. Maybe it's psychologically damaging to find out the harsh truth about ourselves, that we're born in sin and we need a Savior to come out of it. But how psychologically eh, comforting do you suppose it is to find out That you're really the offspring of an ape-like creature that is the offspring of a mammal, that's the offspring of a reptile, that's the offspring of a fish, that's the offspring of an amoeba that arose from a rock in a primordial broth. And when you die, you get the supreme privilege of going back to being a rock. You know, it it might damage people to find out that they're sinners. I have no doubt, really what it will damage is their self-esteem. And to them, that's the end of the world, right? We've been taught that our whole lives, the whole self-esteem thing. But at least, in our view, there's hope for some. There's a wonderful old poem by a great poet called William Cullen Bryant. Anyone remember William Cullen Bryant? He wrote a poem called Thanatopsis. It's a great Greek word. It's about death. The things surrounding death. Thanatopsis, very fancy word. My father loved this poem, and I learned much of it by heart when I was young. And it's this wonderful description of a man who's dying and how wonderful the experience is because he gets to go back to being part of nature. And he even says he will be part of the... The sluggish clod or the insensible rock. He will be brother to the insensible rock. And he says a person who dies, it's like wrapping the drapery of his couch around him and lying down to pleasant dreams of being returned to the elements of the earth. Think about that. He he put it in wonderful, flowery, poetic language, but he's talking about death just being the end, and life really wasn't that great either. I mean, and that's more hopeful than the Christian message. But unfortunately, Phil Donahue never heard from me, and so I don't know how his faith's doing today. But that's Lloyd Jones. Trust yourself, self-expression. Lloyd-Jones went on to say, the Christian teaching about sin, they say, is restricting. And all this teaching in the Bible about self-abnegation ab- is, is bad for the psyche. Abnegation is renouncing. It's like a renouncing of self. Um, self-abnegation is bad for the psyche. And that's always been the attitude of people in the world, Lloyd-Jones writes. In other words, nothing's changed. There were Phil Donahue's in the ancient world, and now we have them today. And by the way, he got displaced by Oprah, who became the great high priestess of spiritual afternoons. (laughs) So here in Romans 12, we come to the place in Paul's great treatise that commends the application by those who have gained the greatest gift imaginable. Justification before God. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, it hurt my feelings to find that out. But I am glad there's a remedy. And I've been given a gift, and it's called justification before God. And the promise comes with that gift that eternal life is attached to everyone who's been justified. Eternal life in the heavenly presence of divine glory will be face to face with Almighty God. And so the question must be asked, how does a people act when they find out that they've been justified? favored by God. See, for 11 chapters, Paul taught us that we're favored by God. No work of ourselves that anyone should boast. Right? Proud people, get rid of that. Pride that boasts. It's all humility. We just received it from God who graciously supplied it and handed it to us on a silver platter, as it were. So when we find this out, what's the reflexive action Of a people that have been so favored. Well, it's worship. It's always been worship. So chapter 12 is about worship. Worship him in spirit and truth. Worship him according to the dictates of his own desires. Worship him as members of a corporate community that identifies as the body of Christ. We don't mind being called a body of Christ because we have an exalted head. He's the head, we're the members. And without this essential quality of humility, such a thing could never have come about. God has to break our spirits. He has to break our self-esteem. He has to bring us to a place where we recognize our need. And so we read, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually what? Members of one another. We have no place to say to someone else, I have no need of thee. When those traveling sojourners going around judging the churches to decide which one they're going to attach themselves to, the most prideful thing they could do is not choose a church because of the people that are in it because the people that are in it are chosen by God you reject them at your peril and that's what Paul's writing that's what the body is all about so I asked the Thursday evening group another question they're much smarter than everyone else by the way Um, just kidding I based it upon the focus of the church of the last few decades the focus of the church was what? The much heralded church growth movement. The church growth movement. The church has conceived many different strategies to bring people into the fold of God. All these different strategies. But my question was this since the, we, see all, we see these mega churches, we see churches all over the world. We talked about Andy Stanley lately. That's a tragedy of momentous proportion. That one of the great spokesmen for God, supposedly, I never really had much. Respect for what he said, but he went completely off the deep end that the Old Testament isn't even the word of God. It's not inspired anymore, and we don't need it. In fact, we don't need most of the new. And I won't even go into it because it's not part of what we're talking about here. But the church growth movement, well, the reason I say it, because his church is one of the biggest in the world. Someone said it's the biggest The church has conceived many different strategies to bring people in. But my question was, even with the last 20 years of well-thought-out strategies for kingdom growth, is the church having an appreciable influence upon the morality of our society at large? And it was a very simple answer. No, we're seeing morality at large decrease. Now, I do want to say... Fixing society is really not the first job of the church, by the way. All right? That should be like an aftershock by finding out that there's so many Christians in society, and these people have a voice, and these people live their lives in a certain way, and they order their lives around the Lord's Day. And there's a great witness of what they do, and they vote for people who have high moral standards, and then policies change, and then you actually see something in the world. But that isn't the first directive Of the uh, first function of the church, it's rather an aftershock of it when the when a huge demographic change has taken place. But such a change, when it does take place, is only sympathetic. And what what does that mean? It means it's caused by something else. Like if I yell outside in the in the mountains, I'm going to the mountains in a couple of days, and when I yell, you'll hear the voice come back. That sympathetic sound. You know what I mean? It's, it's, not, it's not really my voice. It bounced off of something and came back. It's called sympathetic, right? So the change in society doesn't really change hearts just because we became the biggest uh, voting block of society, which we haven't, but we're a big one. Um, It's just a a sympathetic change. In other words, it's not due to the changed hearts of the members of our society, but rather due to the influence of the members of the growing church whose hearts have been truly changed and whose voices have been truly heard. So in spite of themselves, a large Christian demographic could moralize a nation. So the answer to my question is readily observed. The church has done little to change the moral direction of the country. But what of the church? Is the church still the church that Paul conceived? Is it still being instituted according to the New Testament pattern? I would say that the answer is also no. I think the the big churches of the world, the mega churches of the world, don't want that kind of a church. We heard Ainsley Earhart the other morning, who I didn't name last week, I'll name this week, who got on there in the morning show on Fox and said with a, with a, um, a very popular, I don't know who he is, but a very popular musician, that concerts are the new worship service. That's it. it the church has evolved. Oh, isn't it wonderful how the church has evolved? So I'm saying they, they don't even want the church to be what Paul says it is. They want it to be something else. And let me offer some evidence of this. Last week, World Magazine, a generally reliable periodical that looks at current events through the lens of Scripture, had two articles on the Sabbath, on Sabbath observance. Two articles. Did you read them? Neither article article even mentioned church attendance on Sunday as the quintessential habit of those who claim to be Christians. Being a Christian is no longer popularly thought of as attending a worship service on the Lord's Day. Both spoke of rest from the busyness of life, right? In other words, the man-centered part of it. In fairness, the article by one Rhode Island pastor who was a Reformed pastor who wrote a book, the article was about the book, so I want to be fair to him because I didn't read the book, but the run-up to the book said nothing about, Sabbath, about um, Sunday worship. So I don't know what the book says, but the article about the book has no mention of congregational worship as essential to the fulfillment of the Fourth Commandment. So what I'm saying is the church does not want the church that Paul describes. It seems to me. And the other article was by one of the flighty women journalists, who I really have received nothing of since they brought her on, Her newly discovered understanding had to do with just quietly observing creation and slowing down one day a week. She spoke of the fourth commandment as God's mandatory day off. She writes, so I reasoned. You see, there's the mistake. I reasoned. Don't be wise in your own opinion. So I reasoned that as long as I didn't work, I was keeping the modern Sabbath. This is in one of my favorite magazines. She spoke of folding her last piece of laundry on Saturday night and putting away the last of the groceries from Trader Joe's. Friends, there's no Trader Joe's around here. I've been to one in Boston years ago. Is it an upscale place? So is that a little like, I shop at Trader Joe's. (laughs) I I don't know. She didn't say true keys of market basket, so... (laughs) Right away, I know she has more money than me, but... She admits that her simplistic conclusion missed the point. She admits that, right? But she went on to list the things that she had come to believe were important in keeping the Sabbath commandment. On Sundays I make room for food, family, and fellowship as I keep a running conversation with the Master. I also try to find time to sit and marvel at His creation. Nary a nod to church attendance or the marvel of the body of Christ, worshiping their exalted head. That's not something she wanted to investigate. Rather than regale us with mentions of deep and wonderful revelation of scriptural truths in the company of the people of God, she wrote that she had time to mingle with the things of creation, like birds and beasts and creeping things, from Romans one twelve. She writes of her marvelous new knowledge, and this is what she said, and I quote, Did you know that since dragonflies can rotate all four wings independently, they can fly backward? Or that hummingbirds can fly upside down? Or that Cooper's hawks sometimes lie on their backs like beach bums and sun themselves. Or that God made my dog and yours with noses so sensitive they pick up scents 12 miles away. How she knows that by sitting on her outdoor lounge, I have no idea. And she says, marvelous. Friend, she's, she's worshiping nature. You know, we had a friend in the church whose father, whose name is Manny, but I know most people around here, his name is Manny, but. He had a garden, and I always used to, you know, preach the gospel to Manny and his daughter, and the grandkids would go to church with us. And uh, I went over there one Saturday, and he was rototilling his garden in the spring. And it was this little patch of ground in New Bedford, maybe twice as big, maybe, as the stage. And he's got his rototiller, and he saw me come over, and he shut it off, and he went, Danny, this is my church. This little patch of ground that he was rototilling is his church. That's basically what she's saying. This is my church. Tra- In other words, this is where I commune with, with God. I recognize the same God as you, and he made this patch of ground for me and a little church building for you and other people who don't have gardens, apparently. But I would ask such a worshiper of nature what she intends to do next Sunday after her cloistered sanctuary has been sufficiently contemplated. Is reading the same as worshiping? I have people say that to me all the time. Oh, I stay home. It's just me and God. Do the insects impart doctrine and teaching? Do they administer the sacraments of God or preach the word of God or sing songs of praise to God? Are the insects doing this? Do they contribute from the increase of the other six days toward the work of Christ in the earth? Do you collect tithes from the insects? Does her resting on the lounge chair replace evangelism or witness to her neighbors that Christ is first in her life? Does she pray for the more needy among us or is she insulated from the needs of others by designing for herself a pattern of personal rest that keeps her from those troubling thoughts? I would say that if they did, this woman would have found her way to the local church and put herself under the authority of the gifted men of God's true church. But such a thing takes humility. Such a thing is blind to the arrogance of defining for oneself what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. Can you imagine sitting there at your computer, at your keyboard... Writing a new view, your personal view of what the Sabbath is, and if it isn't, it ought to be. There's so much written on this subject. Why would you presume to teach? And this goes out to Christians, this writing. Not a word of congregational worship. Such a thing is blind to the arrogance of defining for oneself what it means to worship God. Let me say it plainly, friends. The first attack on God's holy day was to proclaim it a family day. That's the first attack. And the second was to refer to a divine ordinance as the modern Sabbath. Such a summation of Sabbath duties leaves me and she empty of the purpose of Sabbath, of presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, not at the pool, not poolside, and I don't know what you do in the winter, but not poolside, but in the pew. Keeping the Sabbath as an individual holiday from the busyness of life and lying with an iced coffee on the patio, observing the dragonflies, the birds, and the dogs is a wonderful moment, which I suggest you all do on Monday or Tuesday. I'm quite certain of this, but there, where would such a person, person ever have heard the teaching of Paul lovingly inscribed on parchment and read in the great congregation of the Roman church? Because she wouldn't have been there. If all the first century Christians stayed home on Sundays and contemplated the fauna and flora of their ancient world, most of them were slaves, by the way, and didn't have a backyard. She made the fatal mistake that so many believers make today. She referred to Jesus' words that God made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath. It's Mark 2:27. You know what it, where it says it, right? Jesus' apostles were rubbing grain between their hands, and the Pharisees came out and said, "You're harvesting on God's holy day." They were just eating. And man, it isn't much either. A few heads of grain. And Jesus said, God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. Then he referred to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, this is my day. Of course, they missed all of that. And people that say God made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath, well, of course it's correct. But they conclude that it means... That the Sabbath is a gift to man, and since it's a gift, the individual person can do with it as he chooses. Try that with the other gifts of God. How about wives? Wives come to mind, right? The Scripture said, man was not created for woman, but woman for the man. A good wife is from the Lord. It's a gift. She's a gift. I'll do whatever I want with her. Try getting away with that in God's kingdom, right? No, the Sabbath is still the Sabbath, but it's for you. It's for your benefit. It's not for you to redefine. I hardly believe that this woman would say that the man may do anything he wants with his great gift of his wife. No, the Sabbath was made for men, but it still remains the Sabbath. It's kind of like the kid who's given the toys. Wasn't that the... I'm going back now. The Toy Story kid? And he says, say, these are my toys. I'll do whatever I want. And he starts breaking them up and destroying them. <laughs> that's what you're talking about here. I'll do whatever I want with the Sabbath. it's made for me. The woman is made for men, but she is still a woman, friends. She's a human being, a child of God to be received with thanksgiving and loved for what she is, not for what we would have her be. And so is the Sabbath, a thing that's made for a purpose. And not to be reconfigured to suit the plethora of personal tastes of the individual. I want to read to you about this. I'm going to turn quickly to Isaiah. Seem to be turning to Isaiah a lot lately. Chapter 58. Where he writes, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath... From doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's what the Sabbath was intended to be, a delight. Doing God's ways on that day. So we've seen in the series that the apostle has turned from soteriology, that's talking about salvation, to the doctrines of the church, of worship. He said, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments And his ways pass finding out, for of him and to him are all things. So friends, we began as sojourners in a sin-cursed world, but we were plucked out. As Wesley said, he was plucked as a brand from the fire. We're plucked out like so many peppers, plucked from the garden. We're plucked off the plant of the world out in the society of men and brought to the master's house for his own special use. But just as the peppers or the tomatoes or the carrots from the garden were plucked for consumption by the master gardener, we, like they, are placed in a bowl on the table with all the other produce that's been selected by the farmer and the best of the crop are put on display. And we found in the plucking or the choosing or the electing grace of the Master that though we formerly thought we belonged to ourselves, that in reality we belonged to someone else. And though we thought that our lives would be lived to ourselves, we find that we have another use, a nobler use than that. We're the fruit of the Father's love for us, and we find that our life's course would not be lived individually, but corporately. Members, many members, one body. We began as individuals, friends, but we were selected for our part in a community. And everyone has a part. You know, Paul says we're a body. Peter says we're a building made of living stones. Friends, the gift you recognize in yourself might just be one of the bricks in the wall, but I wouldn't want to... Trust that wall if you pull that one brick out of it. Your place is designed by God. He said to the Corinthians, God has put the members of the church just as he pleased. You have a place. You have a purpose. However small it might be. And so I've used a crude analogy of a vegetable garden, but the Lord uses other illustrations to convey how we're to be used by our master we have entered into what we may call the Lord's ecclesiology he's teaching us what the church has to be and I fear that though the church at large has largely forgotten how we are and should be bound together I'm determined that we do not forget this most essential teaching of the New Testament because the essential teaching of the New Testament friends is the doctrine of the church It's a great and glorious phenomenon. It was kept as a mystery for many years, Paul said, as I read this morning. It's a simple doctrine, friends, but we make it simplistic at our peril. The things of worship are regarded by some as less exciting than they ought to be. We live in a special effects sort of world, you know what I mean? Pyrotechnic world. So we do what people have always done. We try to improve on God's methods and God's structures. And that's fine on the surface, but when it, becomes a, a, when it becomes a problem is when we seek to jettison what is revealed for what we imagine or what we thought should have been revealed. We jettison what is old and what is ancient, what is supposed to be eternal, and we exchange it for something new and something trendy and something invented and something human. We had something noble and divine, and we want to turn it into something base and lowly and human. We take what is presented as priceless jewels of revelation and transform them into costume jewelry. We take a priceless thing and turn it into a cheap thing when we try to reinvent the church. Lloyd-Jones begins his commentary on this section with these words, and I'll close with this. And remember, he's preaching, he's not writing a commentary. He said, here the apostle gives a picture of Christian men and women exercising their gifts in the church. In a way, it is inevitable, he writes, that Paul should start here. Then he has this wonderful definition of Christianity. Christians are people who come together. That is the church. They come together because they have been born again, he writes. Because all things that Paul has been expounding in the first 11 chapters are true of them. The first place you find a Christian, therefore, is in the church. Paul starts with the Christian living his life in the church. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, revitalize the church today with the true teachings of your word. And give us reverence for them. And let us delight in the worship of God. Let us hear your word expounded, O Lord. And let the Holy Spirit apply it to our life with joy and power and promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.